Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. This week on Southcrest Live, featuring Dr. David Wilson, we continue our new study in the book of 2 Peter called Knowing and Growing. In the second installment of our new study, Peter shifts our focus from what we are to what we have. Open your Bible to 2 Peter 1 and listen to this week's message as we explore God's person, His provision, and His promises in Know What You Have from Pastor David Wilson. 2 Peter chapter 1 We just started last Sunday, and today we're going to look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter. I'm going to read uh, all four verses just so we can keep it some continuity and context here. So would you stand while I read God's Word? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And now we ask you, God, to remind us what we have in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. In 1799, some of you may remember this. In 1799, Conrad Reed, the son of farmer and former Hessian soldier John Reed, found a 17-pound yellow rock in Little Meadow Creek on the family farm in Carabas County, Uh, Cabarrus County, North Carolina. And for three years, this 17-pound yellow rock served as a bulky doorstop on the porch. In 1802, a jeweler from Fayetteville, North Carolina, came through and identified that rock as a large gold nugget. He told John Reed, I'll buy it, name your price. And John Reed, not understanding the true value of gold, asked, he asked the price of what he thought was a hefty price, $3.50. It was a week's worth of wages. At that time, that nugget was worth $3,600. In our money today, be $300,000. A $300,000 doorstop. Now, the United Press International in 1970 carried this story. For several years, a 14-inch statue was used as a doorstop, here we go again, in the home of Leo Carey of Green Township, Ohio. It was not until his estate was appraised that someone recognized the item as a replica 
in miniature by Rodin of his classic sculpture, The Thinker, which is a masterpiece created in the 19th century. When art dealers evaluated this little 14-inch statue, they estimated the worth of it at $16,000. He didn't know what he had. You need to check your doorstops when you get home. (laughs) A lot of people don't know what they have. It's amazing to me how many Christians do not know what they have. And some of you have been Christians for so long, you take for granted what you have. Now, last Sunday, we began this study, and we know that the common theme of 2 Peter is knowledge. The more you know, the more you grow. And so I hope that gets ingrained in your mind because he was concerned about heresy that was coming up in the church, and he'll, we'll see that in chapter 2. But he's saying that the knowledge of who you are and what you have begins to help you to grow. The first chapter talks about growing in the Lord, and he spends a lot of time talking about knowledge. Now, last week, we talked about, do you know who you are in Christ Jesus? And and we talked about you were a sinner, then you became a saint. Remember, you accepted Christ, a servant, a slave, a bond servant. You serve the Lord. You're not a volunteer. You're a servant. And then he talked about being sent. We talked also about the sameness of salvation and how all of us have come to Christ the same way. You are not saved any differently than Peter or Paul or James or anyone else in here that knows Jesus. We're all saved the same way. And so there's a sameness about salvation. He also mentioned to us the source of that, of course, was Jesus Christ. And there's a sequence to it because grace comes first. Grace comes first. And then peace. It's never peace and grace. It's always grace and peace. Because until you experience the grace of God, you do not have the peace of God in your heart. Now, so you know who you are in Christ Jesus. And incidentally, that one phrase, he called Jesus God. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. We know he's the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead. So there's a lot of truth just in those first two verses. But you need to know who you are in Christ Jesus. But now we're going to talk about what you already have, not what you're going to get, what you already have. And some of you don't even realize it. Some of you take it for granted. Some of you are not using it. Let's talk about what you have. First, you are a possessor. You possess God's provision. What has he given us? He's given us so much when you were saved. When you accepted Jesus as your Savior, you committed your life to him, you repented of your sins and followed Christ, God provided you with several things. Actually, all things. He provided with you with everything you need to live the kind of life God wants you to live. Now, you're going to grow and you're going to learn more and you're going to mature But you already have it. You don't have to go looking for some extra. God didn't just partially save you. He saved you to the uttermost. He saved you completely. Notice several things. Notice what I'll call the surety or the sureness of his power. It says in verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things. His power. Salvation was not some haphazard event that just accidentally happened to you. God came looking for you. You didn't go looking for God. He came looking for you. 
He, we love him because he first loved us and came seeking us. You didn't accidentally get saved. God and his sovereignty knew you needed to be saved and gave you the opportunity to be saved. You responded in faith, but we're not saved by human effort. You're not going to earn it. You're not going to buy it. You're not going to inherit it from your parents or grandparents. God saved you by his power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that's going to give us a new body one day when we're resurrected from the dead or we're, when we're, if we're still alive when Jesus returns and we're given a new body. You're, you're going to be transformed. You're going to be given a glorified body. I'm so glad. Aren't you? The same power that's going to do that same power saved you. Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek or the Gentile. We can rejoice knowing that this power not only saves us, but it keeps us. You don't hold on to God. He holds on to you. You don't keep yourself saved. You didn't save yourself in the first place. You don't keep yourself saved. He keeps you. Listen to Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. You're able to do some things that you never thought you'd be able to do because God's given you the ability and power to do it. Now the grammatical makeup of this phrase has given says it this way, something happened to you in the past when you were converted, when you were saved, when you committed your life to Christ, and it wasn't over then. You've just begun because the effects of that power are still available and current in your life now. It happened then. You've just begun. The power that saved you many years ago or just a week ago or whenever you came to Christ, that same power is still with you. He's still in your life. So the surety, we, we, I'm, I was saved by God's power. You were too, amen? The second thing you see is the scope of it. Look at the scope of his provision. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. The word given, interesting word, it means to be large. It's, it speaks of large-handed generosity. In other words, God didn't save you and say, you know, I'm just going to give you a little dose. I'm just going to barely save you. I'm, I'm going to save you. I'm just going to cover your sin, but now you're on your own. No, he, he said, I'm giving you salvation with generosity. You're getting everything you need to be saved. You're getting everything you need to live a life of godliness. And the word life is the word zoe in the Greek, which we get our word zoo or zoology from that. It speaks of our physical life, but also our eternal life. God's given you everything to live this life that you need to live a godly life. And, and the word godliness speaks of our it speaks of a relationship. I'll just put it this way. It's not the external things that we do, like coming to church and, and things of that nature. It speaks of the inward relationship that we have with God. God has given you 
with much generosity, everything you need for this life, this, the life of godliness and salvation to live for him. You don't have to go getting extra doses of it. You didn't get part of it and then you get it later. He gave it all to you. You have, you're, as, you're as saved as you're going to be and you've got the God's power in you. You just may not be living it. But the scope of his provision is that he's been very generous God didn't just save, it, save us and then set us out on our own. Okay, I saved you from your sin. Now, good luck trying to live for me. No, he gave you everything you need. You're a child of God. And he's given you what you need to live for him. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. I can imagine Peter, who's in prison. This is his last letter before he was killed, probably within a year. He's probably thinking back over the last 30 years of following Jesus. And he's thinking about how God had given him in his power everything that he needed. Everything that he needed to teach and to preach and encourage and shepherd and disciple, whatever he needed, God's power had granted to him the ability to do with it. I can imagine him thinking, God has given us all things we need for this life. But you also see the source of this provision. Because it's not through our own merit, it's through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Now, knowledge here is the word that we would say the general knowledge of conversion. When you were saved, when I say saved, I mean when you repented of your sin and you committed your life to Jesus, you had a basic knowledge of that, didn't you? You may not have known all the big theological discussions about everything Jesus did. You just basically knew you were lost, that Jesus had paid for your sin, that you could be forgiven of your sin and be given eternal life through Jesus Christ. You just had a basic knowledge. And the word us in that phrase doesn't mean the apostles. It means everybody that's come to know Christ. Peter's saying that all Christians are the object of the call that he's described. All of us are called to salvation. God invited you. God sought you. I believe you could, and I personally believe you could say no. I, I believe that you responded by faith. But I do know that Jesus said no one comes to the Father except the Father bid him to come. This, this knowledge of who Jesus is and that it came from him, he's describing that. Why? Are people drawn to Jesus? Well, for several reasons. First of all, he's the only one that could save us. He was the only one that lived without sin. He's the God-man. But it says by his virtue and his glory. Virtue speaks of his moral goodness and the fact that Jesus did good things for people. He's a good God. He, he you know, you, it's born out in the gospels. He did good things for people. But his glory speaks of his divinity and his, that he was the God-man. And when people realize what Jesus has done for them, because of his willingness to pay the price for our sin and his willingness to do good, people are drawn to Jesus. That's why we lift up Jesus here. People aren't drawn to this building. 
They don't come in here because of this building. The reason they come in here because of this building is because there's no more, there's more chairs now. But they're not saying, oh, you know what? I, I, I just got to go to that building on Sunday. I'm just drawn to this building. We have wonderful music. But people don't just come for the music. It's part of the worship that we do. People are drawn to Jesus. Jesus changed your life. He will change your life. Being a Baptist won't change your life. Make you fat. (laughs) I'm living proof. I think I've gained about two pounds for every 30, for every year I've been here over the last 27 years. The, The fact is, we gather together to worship our Lord. Jesus Christ is the source. He's the source of our salvation. He's how we're saved. And so we we never will compromise on that. So you're the possessor of God's wonderful salvation and power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that saved Peter and Paul and James and John, that's the same power that saved you. It's still here. Now, I want you to notice that you are also provided with God's promises. God's promises are so wonderful, I think the old apostle couldn't describe it well enough. He used all the words he could think of to try to describe the promises of God. He uses the word precious. Now, the word precious means more valuable than anything you can buy. And Peter used this in the first letter. First Peter 1.7 talks about how our suffering sometimes refines our faith that is more precious than gold. He wrote about how we've been cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus. First Peter 1.19. He talked about Jesus being the living stone that's rejected by man but chosen by God and precious. Chapter 2 verse 4. But here he uses the word the precious promises of God. More valuable than anything money can buy. But that wasn't enough. So he takes the, the Greek word for great. Now, y'all use this word. You just don't know it's a Greek word. But it's the word mega. M-E-G-A, mega. When you see something that says it has mega base, it means that's enough base to bother the car next to you out on the street. <laughs> when you're playing it. You know what I'm talking about? Mega, huge. But even that word wasn't big enough for Peter. He said, he, he added an ending on it. Mega, magista, M-E-G-I-S-T-A, magista, exceedingly. He said, it's even mega, mega. Precious, outstanding, it's magnificent. You cannot fathom the promises of God. We take them for granted. We used to sing an old hymn, Standing on the Promises of God. John Bunyan spent much of his life in prison because of his faith. He wrote these words, the pathway of life is strewn so thickly with the promises of God that it is impossible to take one step without treading upon them. Aren't you glad that God keeps his promises? Psalm 
145.13 says, The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. In the NIV, it translates it that way. You know, sometimes we get so familiar with God's promises that we just take them for granted. You are assured. You are promised the forgiveness of sin and eternal life through Jesus Christ. You are promised the indwelling and guidance of the Holy Spirit in your life. We are promised strength and wisdom for every task we face each day we live. We're promised a home in heaven when this life is over. Each promise the Lord made, he keeps or will keep. The promises of God are like blank checks drawn on the bank of heaven, signed by the Lord of glory, and given to us so that we can fill in our name for what we need in the now. Are the promises that Peter are talking about, are they past promises? Or are they present promises? Or are they future promises? Exactly. The answer is yes. Thank you. They're all of the promises of God, the ones that have already been fulfilled, the ones that are going to be fulfilled. Our English word promise comes from two Latin words, one meaning forth and the other one send, send forth. So a promise carries the idea of sending forth a statement that can be claimed in the future. Most everyone in here at some time in their life has signed a promissory note alone. You promised you're going to pay back this loan. <clears throat> Not everybody fulfills that promise, do they? You promise you're going to pay this back. Not everybody that says they promise you something fulfills that promise. Jonathan Swift said promises and pie crusts are made to be broken. <laughs> If you deal with people, you're going to have a promise broken. We've been lied to, haven't we? And if we're not careful, we become cynical. Yeah, right. I've heard that before. Yeah, I'm sure they're going to come through on that. They said they would do. Yeah, right. We become cynical. And then if we're not careful, we transfer that to the promises of God. Somebody may have promised you they would stay with you till death do you part, and they broke that promise. Or they promised they'd give you a promotion and a raise, and if you worked harder and longer, instead you found yourself out of a job. Don't be surprised. People break promises all the time. But the good news is God's promises are certain. God cannot lie, and he will not break a promise. God's promises are something that you can stand on. You can rest assured on. Listen to a part of Numbers 23, 19 and 1 Kings 8, 56. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave. 
Herbert Lockyer wrote a book entitled All the Promises of the Bible. In it, he said, if you would only read from Genesis to Revelation and see all the promises made by God to his people, if you would spend a month feeding on the precious promises of God, you wouldn't be going about complaining about how poor you are. You would lift up your head and proclaim the riches of his grace because you could not help but do it. Some of those promises have been fulfilled. Jesus would come as the Messiah, that he would die on the cross for our sin, that he would be raised again. Those promises have been fulfilled. There are promises that are present. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. We have been forgiven and adopted into the kingdom of God, been born again. He hears our prayers and answers them. He will never leave us or forsake us. He loves us in spite of our failures and sins. Those are present promises. What about the future? He said he'll meet the needs we have according to his riches and glory. He said we'll go to heaven when we die. He said we'll escape the punishment of hell that we deserve because of our sin. He said that Christ will return and take us home. He said that our bodies, whether living or dead, at Christ's return will be raised and changed in a moment, given a glorified body. I'm so thankful for that promise, aren't you? He said we'll rule and reign with Christ in the new heaven and new earth. Those are just a few of the promises from the hundreds in the Bible. Herbert Lockyer that I mentioned a moment ago was a pastor, a prolific writer who wrote 50 books about the Bible. He died in 1985 at the tender age of 99. One of his books, All the Promises of the Bible, he went through the Bible and counted all the promises of God in the Bible. 7,000 457 promises given to man. Now that means if you read one promise a day, it'd take you 20 years to read them all. And if I tried to preach on a different promise every Sunday, it'd take 143 years to cover them all. That's why Peter ran out of words trying to describe the promises of God. You have those promises. Amen? You have those promises. So you're provided with God's provision and salvation, but you've got his promises. But now you're a participant in God's person. You're a partaker of the divine nature. You're a participant. Look at verse 4, by which you've been given exceeding great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Now, the word partake in the King James or New King James or participant or participate, depending on the translation you have, comes from the noun koinonos, which means to share with someone, to companion with, to partner with. It's related to the word koinonia, which means fellowship of believers. In other words, we become a partner or a sharer, I should say, is a better word. A lot of times we think a partner is equal. A sharer of God's nature. Now, folks, listen. There are some people who believe in the world that one of these days you're going to be absorbed into the deity, into nothingness. 
Buddhism, I think, is a lot like that. And then there are people who will tell you that one day you are going to be a God, little g, God. The Mormons will teach you that. You're not going to be God. You're not going to be absorbed into the deity. But you are a participant. You are a partaker of God's nature in you. When you were born again, when you repented of your sin and received Christ, you were born again, God's spirit came and indwelt you. When you turned from your sin and repentance and you received Christ and trusted him as your savior and committed your life to him, God gave you his spirit as a guarantee, as the proof, as the promise of ultimate salvation in heaven. God put his nature in you and me. John 1.12 says, as many as received him, to them God gave the right to be called the children of God, even those that believe on his name. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live because Christ lives in me. And what he's saying is that our spiritual commitment to Christ, we become sharers of his nature. Now, what does that mean? Now, stay with me here. When your nature determines your appetite. He's going to tell us later in chapter 2 that hogs like to go to slop and dogs return to their vomit because they're, they're animals. That's kind of gross. But your nature now is in Christ and you are desiring his word. Your nature determines your behavior. An eagle flies because it's an eagle's nature, and a dolphin swims because it's a dolphin's nature. Nature determines your environment. Squirrels climb trees, moles burrow underground, trout swim in the water. Nature also determines association. Lions travel in prides, sheep in flocks, fish in schools. Now, you understand when I'm saying nature, I'm not talking about what you call mother nature. I'm talking about the nature of God living in you. So when Christ's nature lives in you, you are a participant in a relationship with God. You're his child. You have God's nature in you. And if nature determines appetite, then we have God's nature. We want to know more about his word. We want to know more about God. And if we have his nature, then our behavior is going to be like that of the Father. The world around us is headed the wrong direction. God puts his spirit in us with his nature to head us in the right direction. You already have his nature in you. We have a generous God. And when his nature is in you, you become generous. The empty seats in this room, who are they for? The people that aren't here yet. Why do we even care? Why do I care if there are empty seats in here? Why do you care? After all, you got your seat, you're here, you're doing your time, you got your seat. Why, why do you care? Why do you care who's not here? Why do we build this building? 
It was for people who weren't here yet. Why do we care? Because God cares and his nature's in us. All of a sudden, we quit being so selfish. We find out, you know what? It's not about me. It's all about Jesus and what he's done for us. And I want other people to experience the salvation and the participation and the provision that God has given me. I want other people to have that because that's what God wants. And he lives in us. His nature's in us. We become all about others now because God is about others. God could have been selfish and said, you know what? You can all spend eternity in hell. I don't care. But God came seeking you and me. And since he saved us, we want others to be saved also, don't we? You see, the nature determines how we live. I realize I'm just a steward of everything God has given me. So a person that says, Lord, I love you, but never serves, never gives of their time, their talents, their possessions, never does anything. You need to take another look because you're a partaker of God's nature. And when he lives in you, he changes you. You've got God's provision. You've got his promises. You share in his nature. You're not God. You never will be. But he's sharing with us his divine spirit living in us. But you're also preserved from the world's perversion. Look at the last part of verse 4. Partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The word corruption here is it, it's a very graphic word. It means the breakdown of organic matter, deterioration. It refers to that which is decomposing or rotting away. You've escaped the decomposing. You've escaped the deterioration that is in the world through lust. Now, here in this passage and in chapter 2, he uses it again in verse 19. It means inward depravity, to escape. It means to successfully get away from it. When you were redeemed, God saved you and gave you the righteousness of Christ and put his spirit in you and changed your heart. He helped you escape from the rotting of the world through lust. Let me put it this way. About the time you think, and I think, that we've seen the worst of mankind, how could it get any worse? How could anybody be more depraved than somebody who takes a life or human traffics somebody or abuses a baby or whatever? We think, how in the world could anybody do that? Do you ever feel that way? You know why you feel that way? Because you've been delivered from that. Because the Holy Spirit in you, you would never even conceivably think about doing that. And about the time we think we've seen the worst in mankind, somebody else does something that makes it even more worse. 
The reason you and I can't fathom how they're acting is because we've been delivered from that. We've escaped it. Now, it doesn't mean that you still don't sin or have some temptations and stuff, and you can still have some bad thoughts, obviously. But you're not going to head down the path of deterioration. The Lord's not going to let you go that far. He's not going to say, you've been delivered. And what brings all that? The word lust means all the evil desires of the body and of mankind. The reason the world is going to hell in a handbasket, so to speak, is because of people who are depraved, have no relationship with God, who have not been delivered from the deterioration that's coming. And that's why you and I have been, we're going to escape that. We don't have to be there. Aren't you glad God's done that for you? Can you imagine how mean and vile you would be if you did not know Jesus? Y'all are mean enough now. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Just waking you up. But the fact is, think about where you would be without Jesus. Peter was probably thinking that probably thinking, man, it was hard enough following him and I believed in him. And, but I want you to understand you've been delivered. No longer are you controlled by your lusts, your feelings, and your evil desires. The Spirit of God is in you. And as you feed that nature that he's put in you with his word, you have the power to overcome Sometimes, now listen, sometimes these lusts or these desires can be good things. You can enjoy doing something that's not necessarily perverted in any way, but you can enjoy it so much that you put it before God. And so there's a danger there. You've got to have a balance. The Holy Spirit says, now listen, don't let your recreation and don't let your job and don't let this and that get ahead of the Lord in your walk with him. You you need to realize that the Holy Spirit in you helps you stay balanced. I want to read something to you that I pray that all of us will be one day. Some of you have already know about it. It's called the Fellowship of the Unashamed. I want to read this. I'm part of the Fellowship of the Unashamed the die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame divisions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, and popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognized or praised or rewarded. I live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, lift my prayer, and labor by Holy Spirit power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road may be narrow, my way rough, my companions few, but my guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, 
away, turn back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adversary. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must give until I drop, preach until all know, and work till he comes. And when he does come for his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. That's the way Christians are supposed to live. We have God's power in our lives. He has delivered us, and we are his children. If you've never received Christ, I want to tell you, your life will never change by joining a church or just being religious. Your life changes when you realize you have no hope of a change without God. And you come to him in repentance, which says, I've changed my mind, Lord, about how I'm living. I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to be your child. And you ask God to forgive you. And listen, it's not just praying a prayer. We need to stop using that term. We tell people, well, you just pray this prayer and you'll be saved. No, no. You commit your life. You do it through prayer, but you don't just pray a prayer. You ask God to forgive you. You believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sin and God raised him from the dead. And you commit your life to him and say, Lord, with all my being, with all my know-how, I give you my life right now. And I want you to live in me. And that's when the Spirit of God comes into you and lives in you. And you are forgiven and given the righteousness of Jesus. You don't just pray a prayer. A lot of people just prayed a prayer when they were a kid. There's never been a change in their life. It's not a prayer of praying. It's not just praying a prayer. It's a prayer of commitment. If you've never done that, let me tell you the good news. God is inviting you right now. You don't have to join Southcrest. You've just got to know Jesus. If you've been saved, maybe it's time to get back in fellowship with God. My wife is sitting in here. We've been married 40 years. Occasionally, not very often, but occasionally, I do something stupid, and we have a little disagreement. And it's usually my fault. But it's always my fault. Now, that, when we, we make up, we don't have to go get married again. I just tell her I'm sorry. I've, I know what I did wrong, and would you forgive me? And things are good again. When you sin as a child of God, you don't have to be saved again. You just confess your sin, 1 John 1, 9, and God says, I will forgive it and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you make that fellowship sweet with God again. Some of you need to make that fellowship sweet with God. Some of you need a church home. Southcrest, this is the place you come. Some of you need to be baptized, just like these three this morning that profess their faith in Jesus. That was not an option. Baptism doesn't save you, but it's not an option. It's the first act of obedience. Yes, Lord, you saved me. I'll let everybody know. I'm not ashamed. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Thank you, Pastor David. 
Here in verses 3 and 4, Peter details our possession of God's provision for us, including the source and scope of that provision, as well as the surety of the power that makes it possible. He also reminds us of God's promises, past, present, and future, how we are preserved from the world's corruption, and how we are participants of God's person, partakers of His divine nature, since He has provided us His Holy Spirit. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Be sure to catch our next installment of the Southcrest Live podcast. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.